saving their breath for the work of their bodies. On every side was the silence, pressing upon them with a tangible presence. It affected their minds as the many atmospheres of deep water affect the body of the diver. It crushed them with the weight of unending vastness and unalterable decree. It crushed them into the remotest recesses of their own minds, pressing out of them like juices from the grape all the false ardors and exaltations and undue self-values of the human soul, until they perceived themselves finite and small, specks and motes, moving with weak cunning and little wisdom amidst the play and interplay of the great blind elements and forces. An hour went by, and a second hour. The pale light of the short, sunless day was beginning to fade, when a faint, far cry arose on the still air. It soared upward with a swift rush till it reached its topmost note, where it persisted, palpitant and tense, and then slowly died away. It might have been a lost soul wailing, had it not been invested with a certain sad fierceness and hungry eagerness. The front man turned his head until his eyes met the eyes of the man behind, and then, across the narrow oblong box, each nodded to the other. A second cry arose, piercing the silence with needle-like shrillness. Both men located the sound. It was to the rear, somewhere in the snow expanse they had just traversed. A third and answering cry arose also to the rear and to the left of the second cry. "'They're after us, Bill,' said the man at the front, his voice sounded hoarse and unreal, and he had spoken with apparent effort. "'Meat is scarce,' answered his comrade. "'I ain't seen a rabbit sign for days.' Thereafter they spoke no more, though their ears were keen for the hunting cries that continued to rise behind them. At the fall of darkness they swung the dogs into a cluster of spruce trees on the edge of the waterway and made a camp. The coffin at the side of the fire— served for seat and table. The wolf-dogs, clustered on the far side of the fire, snarled and bickered among themselves, but evinced no inclination to stray off into the darkness. "'Seems to me, Henry, they're staying remarkable close to camp,' Bill commented. Henry, squatting over the fire and settling the pot of coffee with a piece of ice, nodded. Nor did he speak till he had taken his seat on the coffin and begun to eat. They know where their hides is safe, he said. They'd sooner eat grub than be grub. They're pretty wise, them dogs. Bill shook his head. Oh, I don't know. His comrade looked at him curiously. First time I ever heard you say anything about their not being wise. Henry, said the other, munching with deliberation the beans he was eating, did you happen to notice the way them dogs kicked up when I was a-feedin' them? They did cut up more than usual, Henry acknowledged. How many dogs have we got, Henry? Six. Well, Henry. Bill stopped for a moment in order that his words might gain greater significance. As I was saying, Henry, we've got six dogs. I took six fish out of the bag. I gave one fish to each dog, and Henry... I was one fish short. You counted wrong. We've got six dogs, the other reiterated dispassionately. I took out six fish. One ear didn't get in a fish. 
I come back to the bag afterward and got him his fish. We've only got six dogs, Henry said. Henry, Bill went on, I won't say they was all dogs, but there was seven of them that got fish. Henry stopped eating to glance across the fire and count the dogs. There's only six now, he said. I saw the other one run off across the snow, Bill announced with cool positiveness. I saw seven. His comrade looked at him commiseratingly and said, I'll be almighty glad when this trip's over. What do you mean by that? Bill demanded. I mean that this load of iron is getting on your nerves and that you're beginning to see things. I thought of that, Bill answered gravely, and so when I saw it run off across the snow, I looked in the snow and saw its tracks. Then I counted the dogs, and there were still six of them. The tracks...